Hey everybody, it's Dan. How you doing? How you feeling? Do you hear something? Yeah, I know it's a few days after Halloween, but I kind of forgot to go Halloween crazy on you guys. Um, and now, I think I'm in hell. I'm not 100% sure on that, but I think I'm in hell. By the way, this is Dan, uh, main host of Eventually Super Train. Welcome to episode 57, everybody. These folks can go on like this for ages, so I'm just going to let them go on talking. Welcome to episode 50, 50, 57 of Eventually. Now they're distracting me. Guys, could you can it just for a minute? You can still hear them, but they're not as, as foregrounded. They're kind of nuts, aren't they? So, anyways, Dan, Eventually Super Train, episode 57, the short-lived TV show podcast. We cover short-lived TV shows one episode at a time. Eventually, we will get to Super Train. And if this is your first time listening, welcome. Welcome to the show. Uh, each episode is three segments. Each segment has a different guest host, unless I'm doing one of the shows by myself. And there's a new old show starting up today, uh, which I am... You know, I gotta stop them just for a second. I, I I applaud you guys for having so much fun, but you're distracting the hell out of me. So, uh, what was I saying? Oh yes. Uh, so I have a new guest host on. I have a new uh, different guest host on for each segment, and we have three segments a show, and we go episode by episode through shows. Today we are continuing our journey through 1960s The Green Hornet uh, with my good friend Kristen Hawes, aka Kiki Wrights, and we are on episode 24. Of the Green Hornet. The train is pulling into the station, but we ain't there yet. And Mitchell Hadley from It's About TV and myself are discussing episode 13 of uh, Bourbon Street Beat from, I believe we're still in 1959. And then I am discussing the first episode of a show from 1977. Now, if you pay attention to the feed, you would have seen that a few days before this episode went up, there was a mini-sode. And I'll talk more about this when we get to the show. And the mini-sode was for the 1976 TV movie, Future Cop. And so today's episode one of Future Cop with John Amos, Michael Shannon, and yes, Ernest Borgnine. It's fantastic. It's wonderful. I love it to bits. And they're back. So yeah, welcome to the show, everyone. We're going to start off with some Green Hornet. Uh, enjoyed. I'll see you at the end. And here's a little Mr. Bill Dozier. Another challenge for the Green Hornet. His aide, Cato, and their rolling arsenal, the Black Beauty. On police records, a wanted criminal. The Green Hornet is really Britt Reed, owner-publisher of the Daily Sentinel. His dual identity, known only to his secretary and to the district attorney. And now, to protect the rights and lives of decent citizens, rides the Green Hornet. Hornet, save thyself. Episode 24 of the Green Hornet, everybody. March 3rd, 1967. Where were you? I was in the world before this one. If there is a world before this one. Uh, director Seymour Robbie, who has been all over the place. He, he directed the Ellery Queen and the Green Hornet in our last episode. And writer Don Tate. And oddly enough, I don't know if you noticed this, person who I haven't introduced yet, who you may know is on here, but did you notice that there was no producer credit on this one? Kristen Hawes. Yes. 
Isn't yes, that weird? I did notice that there was no producer credit. That's a little. That's a little. So they just they just ran wild with this episode. It was like the you know the the the, the inmates are in charge. Whoa. Um, maybe Mike. They just they figured they, they figured Seymour Robbie had directed so many. They were just like, yeah, he's fine. He doesn't need supervision. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. I would I would have loved to have seen William Bodine come back one more time, but I'm prejudiced. Um, are a biased, not prejudiced. Why would I be prejudiced against William Bodine and Seymour Robbie? I don't know. I don't know either of them. <laughs> I'm sorry, everyone. Um, but yeah, Kristen, how are you, by the way? I'm sorry. I'm doing well. How are you? I'm doing all right. We're getting near the end of the show, and to be honest, at well, Bourbon Street Beat has more episodes, but at this moment, this is the 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 farthest along we've been in a show. Uh, Cobra was 22. Ellery Queen Mysteries is 22, but we're now at 24. So this is crazy here. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to shut my mouth and let you give us a little breakdown of Hornet. I keep calling it Hornet Heal Thyself, but it's Hornet Save Thyself. I'm an idiot. Kristen, please. Okay. Well, we're invited to a surprise birthday party for Britt Reed, held at his house and organized by Dale Hyde, who thoughtfully collected a handgun as a gift for the birthday party and not so thoughtfully invited Eddie Rack in an attempt to force a reconciliation between Britt and Eddie, going so far to give Eddie a little transistor radio as a favor and telling him to go shake Britt's hand. I think it's time for you two to forget and forgive. It's not that easy, Dale. This is for you. He'll get over it. Now go on over and shake hands. You've made a mistake, Dale. The man is a guest in my home, and I'll be the proper host, but I will not shake his hand. Now, Brett, you're pushing too hard, Reed. Why don't you just leave, Rick? You've made a fool of me for the last time. Words are exchanged, Eddie starts to leave, the gun goes off, and Eddie ends up dead. Surprise! Scanlon talks to Britt, who swears that he didn't fire the gun and that it just went off. Scanlon says the whole, that a whole lot of witnesses will say otherwise, and it's known that he and Eddie Reck had bad blood because Britt fired Eddie over sabotaging circulation deliveries. Britt says only the Green Hornet can help him, and when Scanlon tries to stop him from leaving, Britt decks Scanlon, shorts out the lights, and flees via the fireplace elevator while cops shoot at him in the dark because that seems safe. You are in worse trouble now. Where do we start? First, I have to find out how it was done. The secret must be in that gun. I should have examined it immediately. You can walk into the police station and take it? No, but I'll tell you who can. The Green Hornet! They break into the police department under the guise of busting out a prisoner. Green Hornet checks out the gun while Cato kicks some cops. When Hornet finishes his examination, they bust their way out again. At the Sentinel, Dale Hyde is pretty cozy in Britt's office, and Casey is livid that he's printing a, printing a pretty brutal portrait of Eddie Rex's death in the paper. Mr. Hyde, this is a disgrace. The cold-blooded killing took place in the Sentinel publisher's living room as he fired a fatal shot at the unarmed wreck who had come to the party to patch up differences with his former employer. You can't put this in the Sentinel. You think I want to print this story? Then don't! We've got to. 
This is the toughest story I've ever had to write, but it contains the facts as they happened. But you make it a foregone conclusion that Mr. Reed is guilty even before he has a trial. Then in desperate escape, Reed attacked the DA Scanlon and fled under a hail of police bullets. You're using his own newspaper to convict him. You think I've forgotten what I owe Britt Reed for giving me a start again? You think I like running this story? Yes, I do. I think you're using your position as temporary publisher to let go with your true feelings. I think you hate Mr. Reed or you wouldn't be doing this. And you hate him because your paper couldn't compete with the Sentinel and that's why it went under. If there was a shred of mitigating evidence, I'd print it in ten-point red type. But there isn't. You say the story is rough because of your feelings for Mr. Reed. But wait till you see how the tabloids treat it. These are the facts, pure and simple, and we've got to put them in the Sentinel. This is going to put him in the electric chair. Couldn't you bury the story somewhere in the back pages? Let me have it. I, uh... I'll try and tone it down. Back in the Black Beauty, Hornet tells Cato that the gun in the police station felt lighter than it had before and had no clip. Cato points out that Dale Hyde took the gun away from Britt, and Hornet adds that Dale also gave it to him. Britt walks in on Dale Hyde dictating some page one stuff about Britt. Hyde asks Britt if he's turning himself in, and Britt says no, he's trying to clear himself. He asks Hyde where the gun came from, and Hyde tells him. Britt believes the gun was fired by remote control, but he's not sure how. Hyde tells Britt to turn himself in again, but Britt declines. He asks Hyde to call the cops and find out if the clip was picked up with the gun and then meet him in two hours at the commercial cleaner loading docks. Britt leaves, and Hyde calls the cops and turns Britt in. Creep. Scanlon asks the police lieutenant not to shoot Britt at the docks. The lieutenant disagrees. Scanlon reminds him that his job is to bring the man in for trial, and the lieutenant recites the dangers of police work and murder statistics to back up his need to shoot Britt. He'll get him one way or another. Cato warns Britt that he's walking into a trap, and Britt says that there's no proof that Hyde is behind it. So Britt shows up at the commercial cleaning loading docks, and so do the police. Britt flees, and they shoot at him before giving chase through the factory, climbing ladders and catwalks. Britt radios Cato to pull up and aid in his escape. They now know that Hyde is the man, but they need to find out what he did with the clip and the gun. So naturally, they turn to Casey. They pick Casey up at her apartment, and Britt asks her to remember everything about the evening. After Eddie was shot, Hyde took the gun from Britt, checked Eddie, turned his back, then gave the gun to Scanlon. As Casey went upstairs for a first aid kit, she saw Hyde on the phone, and he put something into the flowers, but she couldn't see what it was. So they go to Britt's house and check the flowers and find some kind of electronic equipment that could trigger the firing mechanism in the gun. Casey questions how it fired at Eddie Wreck and no one else. Britt says he'll test one more thing, and then he'll give himself up to Scanlon right there. Cato points out they have no proof against Hyde, but Britt believes he can make Dale Hyde confess. Cue the reenactment. But first, Dan, please, enact what you thought about this episode. Ah, uh, all right. Here, <clears throat> I, I, I have two mm, po- possible uh, caveats with this episode that I don't think are actually problems in the end. One is that... We've said before one of the things with some of these episodes is that uh, when they try to do sort of a mystery, they don't have enough characters. So you're like, oh, it's that person. 
So to me, almost immediately, it was obviously this guy, Dale, who was doing it. But then I realized this, like, the I've actually watched it three times. The third time I watched it, I was like, actually, I don't think it matters that you know that it's Dale. I, I think right off the bat, you know that it's Dale. But the first time I watched it, I thought that maybe they were trying to pull some mystery, but I don't think they are. So, um, so that was my issue. That that was my problem, and I have to deal with that. And there's also the thing where the episodes start so quickly, like what's his name is shot so quickly, and and Scanlan is like, "You're you're we're taking you to jail," and but you know this that and the other thing, and then and Reed punches him out, and and you get these scenes like like that scene there uh, between um, Scanlan and Reed, and then you get the scene between Casey and. Uh, hide, and then you get the scene between Scanlan and the police guy, uh, which are the sort of scenes that you don't normally see in this show because everything's moving so quickly. You don't normally stop to have like a two-minute long, two-three-minute long scene where Miss Case, you know, balls out this guy for for doing a crappy job on something and and and, and sort of indicting uh, Brit in the paper already, and. The first time I watched it, I thought they started so quickly that they actually, like, the writer was, like, got a little ways into it. It was like, oh, my gosh, I don't have enough for the episode, so I have to fill it out with these scenes. But then when I watched it a second time, I was like, no, no, I think the scenes are part of the point of the show. And I was looking at it the way the show had been, which was to jump from scene to scene to scene. This one alter alternately goes very quickly but then also slows it down a bit. I hesitate to say this because I've, I've, I think I've said this before on, on some of these uh, discussions, that there are, there are moments when a show will have trouble with the way it structures its shows or uh, stories or tells its stories. Uh, Manimal was one. When Charlie and I were talking about Manimal, we got to, I think it was the sixth or seventh episode, and we said, oh, was it the eighth? the last one well one of the ones near the end we pretty much said like this is the way they should tell do the episodes this is the way they should be done and it felt a little weird when we watched it because it was different from the others but the more we watched it the more we thought this is how they should handle the single episode story and so i i, I don't know that this was my favorite but um I, I I love Brit on the run. I love the fact that he has to resort to the Green Hornet to try to actually solve the crime. I love the reenactment in the end. It's not as exciting as 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 Cato leaping around going hi and punching a bunch of guys. But I think um, I I really like this episode. Once I like I said once I sorted out in my brain what it was up to, I was like, oh yeah. Actually, this um, this not, no producer episode actually kind of <laughs> nails what I th how I think this show could work as a half hour show. So, what what do you think about it? I like this episode. I you know um, it was different because we don't have this, the typical setup of you know oh here are some criminals and Hornet tries to cut a deal with them and blah blah blah. We have Hornet on his own. I mean, he can't trust Scanlan. He's got yeah, some... punches him hard. Yeah. <laughs> I like to think that he punched Scanlan. That's partly because of, you know, several episodes ago, Mike was accused of murder and Scanlan was all for, oh, yes. for yeah. it. I think I think that was a little bit of revenge on Britt's part, and I'm fine with that. Um, 
He deserved it. <laughs> uh, but I do. I did. I like that he was on the run. That they were trying to figure out. I think you're right, and that it really didn't. In the end, it wasn't much of a mystery. You did. It didn't really matter uh, whether or not you knew that Dale Hyde was the bad guy. I mean, it was obvious he was the bad guy. At one point, Britt's like, you know, I can't believe Dale would do such a thing, and I'm like, have you not been paying attention? Because he invites some dude you hate to your birthday party. He effectively yes. ruined your birthday party. Yeah. This dude when, is not when you cool. Have a, when you have a gun in your hand, yeah. too, you know, it's and there there is a moment too where you can see, and I forget if it's in the reenactment from Miss Case, which I treat as gospel. So whatever she sees, obviously she looks great in her. She's got like a lavender dress on or something, like a kind of purpley lavender dress on at the party. And then when they go, let's pick her up at her apartment, and she's in the black beauty. She looks gorgeous too. It's like she she can't not look fantastic. Yes, I love the coat she's wearing. That black is it so good? Yeah. Oh, oh my god. But, yeah, and there, but there is a moment somewhere in there where when when Hyde goes over Hyde, really Hyde. I get it. He's Mister Hyde. I get it. Um, when he goes over to the the guy whose name I keep forgetting who gets shot, um, uh, he goes over to him and he gives he throws. Rita look like look what I did look at this evil thing that I did and it's just like just for a split second and I'm like I, I, I'll, I'll mention more of, of my thought on, on that in a moment I'm sorry I, I interrupted you please that's alright um, yeah Dale Hyde was definitely it was obvious like even if they did put other people in you know to, to make it more of a mystery of who set him up I mean it was just so obvious this, it was this dude it was this dude he was just that, he just, he had that look. And he was, I mean, I mean, if anybody who, you know, I'm going to rant about this. I love my birthday. <laughs> my birthday is sacred. Britt said he almost forgot it was his birthday, and I'm like, I can't relate. My birthday is my day. And so if somebody brought somebody that I hated to a surprise, to a surprise party oh. for me, I would burn the house down. I would be like, what, you were no, you're no longer my friend. <laughs> I mean, why would you think that would be okay? And he's doing it to try to force a reconciliation. And it's like, look at at the faces on both of these dudes. Neither of them want this. They are both, like, I don't even know why Eddie Rex showed up. Like, I want to know the whopper of a lie that Dale Hyde told him to get him to show up. Yeah, and it's like, he. well, ever ever since you fired him because he was doing something to your circulation. I I mean, it sounded like he was actually very negatively impacting the Sentinel. Yeah. So why I mean why wouldn't you fire him? I mean you know if if you know if if you run a lemonade stand and one of your employees is pooping in the lemonade you you fire them yes. and if they want to come back you don't hire them back because you know what you got lemonade they still got poop so you don't bring them back okay? <laughs> well yeah I mean and that's the other thing too is that you know he's you you know you know you should shake hands and make up no he was actively sabotaging my business. Yes. He clearly yeah. does not like me. Why would I want to be nice to him? Not a friend, an, em- an employee, uh, you know, uh, someone you work yeah. with. You don't, you know, it's not like, it's not like your, your, you know, your mom, you know, who maybe badmouthed you or some called you a piece of garbage or something. You know, it's like, get back together with your ma. She's your ma. No, this is some dumb guy standing in a corner. Yeah, it's, it's a really weird, it's really weird the way it's done because it's like, 
Britt has this gun they gave him in his hand, and then he looks up, and suddenly his face just drops. And you see this guy you've never seen before, who could be Dom DeLuise's brother, standing in the corner. And you're like, what are we, what, who am I looking at? It's, it's, it's real. And then Hyde just goes up and kind of puts his arm around him and goes, here it is. And it's like, <clears throat> this is, um, something, something's going wrong. And really, yeah. and, and here's the thing. I, and I, I'm sorry, I, I keep interrupting you here because um, I, I, re- I really like this episode. And um, But it's like, wouldn't Miss Case or Cato have been like, um, no, <laughs> you big jerk? No, you, you can't bring this yeah. guy in here. Did they sneak him in the back door? I, I feel like they snuck him in because he doesn't, he's not there, I don't think, when they yell surprise. No, it's like... He must have been at the back of the room and nobody had been paying attention because they were all yeah. excitable about, you know, getting their line right, which nobody yelled surprise. I was disappointed. <laughs> the whole point of a surprise party is to yell surprise. Exactly. They barely exactly. remember to yell happy birthday. <laughs> These people were not prepared for the I, I surprise do, party. I, I do I do appreciate Cato. He yells surprise and we know we know Britt loves Cato. We know we know they're super pals. But he does instantly like after the surprise he goes to like the, the punch bowl not, not he goes to the, the tray with all the glasses of punch and he begins to sort of prepare it as as Britt comes in. So it's like God bless you, Cato, you don't I, I I would think this would be the time when you could use some of your millionaire employers money to hire someone to do that you know um but but i'm sorry i interrupted you again that's all right did i i forget where i do um the one the one uh issue i take with the with the episode is um first of all i love a good reenactment that's like my favorite thing when they do especially like on murder she wrote they reenact stuff um so but the, but the flashback when they had Casey, remember everything you saw. Well, first of all, sure, burden Casey with, you know, remembering everything. <laughs> yeah. but the, That's part the, of her job description. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's like I hope you have a photographic memory, which apparently she does. But when they show it, it, I think the flashback would have played better if we'd actually, like, seen more of it from, like, the far away, you know, like, in that moment. Because you wouldn't mm. know where to concentrate your energy, so you actually, yeah. you know, you you're you're watching Dale Hyde do all the stuff that Casey sees him do, but from you're not as focused on it because you're looking at the dead guy and you know yeah. Britt apparently shot him. It, I think the flashback would have played better, and also if Casey's going upstairs to get the the, the first aid kit, which I loved because she's like just in case Eddie Wreck wasn't dead. I'm like bless <laughs> your heart, sweetie. Um, a first aid kit's not gonna help you. <laughs> and where did he keep his first aid? I keep my first aid kit on the third floor in the far corner. I'm guessing he's, I'm in the far corner. I'm guessing he kept keeps it in the upstairs bathroom, which really isn't that handy. Um, no, but no. Especially when you're the Green Hornet. Yeah. Yeah. No kidding. Okay, that means that when he he got shot a couple episodes ago, Cato had to go all the way upstairs. <laughs> I would have loved to have Um, seen, uh, Cato, would you tell me what it was like when you went to get the first aid kit? And then it was like, I went up these stairs, and then I went over there. Um, But, you know, she goes and she says, you know, Dale Hyde was on the phone, and I saw him put put something at the flowers. Here's the thing. Even with all of that chaos going on, you're going to notice somebody 
putting something into a, a basket of obviously fake flowers because there's no reason for them to be doing that. That is a very bizarre, yeah. out-of-the-ordinary move. So just to me, that was very, it just rang wrong to me because it's like she would have noticed that at the beginning. She would have said something about that at the beginning, that he was behaving oddly mm -hmm. because, you know, you don't call for an ambulance and the police, you know, and while you're, uh, you know, dumping things into somebody else's flowers. Yeah. And oh, I'm happen. sorry. Yeah. No. Yeah. I, 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 you know, it's like I like he walked in and was like, I'm going to dump them there. Right by the phone. That's where it's going to happen. Yeah, it's it does that. Unfortunately, yeah, there there is that moment where it's like, ah, uh, I'm glad she saw it, but it doesn't feel quite right. And specifically because like everyone is behind him except for this one very attractive woman who's halfway up the steps in his line of sight, looking down at him. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't know about that. I mean, I I what I actually thought was going to happen. Well, I, I thought that it was going. Uh, uh, it was going to be that um, there were blanks in the gun, and when he leans over the body, and everyone is kind of standing around shocked, he would like inject him with something or do something to him that would kill him, and be like, "He's dead," and yeah. everyone would be like, "Oh my gosh!" So stunned that he'd be just dying right there. And we saw that there's an L. No, oh, gosh. Okay, I was just going to give away the end of an Ellery Queen Mysteries. One of the Ellery Queen Mysteries, which we don't spoil, has an ending that is like that. And there is a... No, I can't do that either, because we might cover that show. But but that that's sort of that... So, I'm, I'm sorry, everyone. But that sometimes pops up, the thing where someone says they're dead. But as they're examining them, they're actually administering the dead thing to them. Right. And that's what I thought he was doing. But no, no, it was the um, uh, Brit's gun had the, the bullets in it. and um, But he, he seems to know his guns and everything. And it's like, why didn't he... I, 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 I think I've held the gun in my hand twice in my life. Because um, my stepdad had a gun. And I just picked it up and I was like, what the F do we need this for? And, and um, uh, but... Um, uh, but but he seems to know the guns, and you would have th thought he, it's 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 a weird moment. The moment when the gun goes off is um, it's it's very much um, it's I I guess well here's the thing I guess the more I talk about this episode the more I can find fault with with it <laughs> because there, there because it li literally is like here's your gun. Brit's holding his gun and getting angry at the guy. Here's your favor, which is the transistor radio. And Brit is just standing there pointing a gun. And I don't know, I don't fully know the rules of guns, but you don't, even if you know it's not loaded, you don't point guns at people, do you? I mean, you No, trying... we don't. Okay. Um, um, my father was a police officer for 25 years. I, I didn't know that. Yes, I grew up in a house full of guns. I We started gun safety when I was, like, four. So wow. there are three rules for a gun. One, you treat every gun like it's loaded. Two, okay. you never point it at anyone you do not intend to destroy. And you do not – and number three is you do not put your finger on the trigger until you intend to destroy it. Those are the rules. And that's what I was brought up with. So – 
that it, that was um, very upsetting for me when it's like they gave this man a loaded gun for mm-hmm. his birthday. That is a terrible gift. That yes. is a terrible, <laughs> terrible gift. You, you you never give loaded weaponry. And when the gun did go off, Britt did have his finger on the trigger. It was in wow. the trigger guard. You know, you do not your finger in the trigger guard at all, period, unless you're ready to shoot. So, Uh, it probably was like that. It was probably like that because he actually had to pull the trigger to get it to the gun to discharge. (laughs) True, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. it's just, there was a whole lot of bad. And as a gun collector, he would have known that. As a gun collector, um, if he was smart about it, he would. the first thing he actually would have done when he got the gun was to take out the clip and check the chamber. Yes. And leave it like that. Yeah. To not have the clip in and, and stuff. And but he still wouldn't point it at people. You still wouldn't point it at people and you still wouldn't put it put your finger on the trigger. Yeah. Yeah. I mean I I think what they're they're doing is that the moment he gets the gun is the moment he sees this guy. So he's like stunned by it and he can't but but still it's a it's a gun. Um yeah. I I don't I mean I I, I adore Mr. Reed and Cato and I'm having such a fun time watching this show. But that is, oh, I've got Miss Case up right now in her zebra striped jacket. She looks good. Um, um, uh, but, oh, uh, sorry, everyone. Um, but, yeah, it is it is a strange moment because um, I, I can live with it, but it is very contrived in order to get to that, that moment where the shot goes off. Um, yeah. And, um, which is... Which is too bad. I, I would have liked it if uh, I don't. I don't even. I don't even know how I, I would have um, done something like that with a gun. Do you remember so long ago that silent gun? Do you remember the? Was it the yes, first episode? Yes, the very first episode. Wow. I was just. I was. I'm sorry, folks. We're getting near the end, so I, I got nostalgic there for our previous chats. Um, but yeah, I don't quite know how I would have done the the gun thing. I mean, I guess if he still had the gun in his I don't because it has to go off at the right moment eh, I guess it did what it did you know and I I, I, th- I think probably yeah in 67 people's TVs were not um, I don't know the lines on the TVs I forget the uh, but I, I don't think they would have probably seen his finger on the trigger it would have been too um, indefinite I think back then um, but uh, but yeah it's um yeah that is I guess the more I talk about this episode, like I said, I could find fault with it. But I just think in theory, and mostly in viewing, I really like this episode because it does the thing where it makes it about the characters mm-hmm. rather, than, rather than some sort of uh, uh, a short-lived show I love, which we might talk about someday, Gemini Man with um, uh, um, Ben K- No, no. Who, who is, who is uh, in Gemini Man? Crap, I forgot the star of it. Um <laughs> I'm Ben Casey. Is it Ben Casey, right? No. Is that ben right? Ben Casey is a TV show. <laughs> it is a TV show. Who am I thinking of? Yeah, um, ben Murphy. Ben Murphy. Why did I say Ben? No, he plays a guy named... Yeah, yeah, Ben Murphy. Yep, you're right. I'm sorry. Thank you. Thank you. Sorry. Because that show had like 11 episodes, and for the first five or six of them, they were based around like the characters, something happening to the characters, which I was very surprised by. And this does that, which I really like. So even if it's a little off, I, I, li- I like the thought that they would do a mix of um, 
sort of uh, standard episodes of the show where he, they get involved with random gangsters or villains, but then these more um, personal sort of episodes. So I, I like. I mean, there were a few moments in here where I thought, "Is is is Britt going to be all right? He's going to be all right, folks. He's all right." But um, what what else do you have on this? I'm scanning my notes here. Well, yeah, I mean, there is there is a lot you can find fault with, but I did I do agree. I like that it was it was Brit it was a Britain peril type thing. Yes. It was because the Green Hornet basically was not involved. Green mm-hmm. the Green Hornet was basically just Brit's cover, so he could find information. For the most part, this was about yes. Brit. It wasn't about it wasn't about the Green Hornet, which was yeah. a nice twist. I thought. It's it's almost sort of a, a a kind of a meta kind of episode where the the um, the the guy has to use his alter ego his his superhero um, uh, uh, identity to uh, um, free himself from this crazy ass thing that he's got into here. Yeah, uh, yeah. let's see. I I do like um, yeah Miss Case. Uh, yeah, she knows everything that's going on. And when he asks Cato, Cato says, "Well, I was getting refreshments." So um, okay, I understand, Cato. You were working. Everyone else was having yeah. a good time. You were you were working. Of course, Cato was working. Miss Case was charged with remembering everything. They all have yeah. roles to play. Yes, I do have one one note here that I I don't specify, but it ends with an exclamation point. It's Miss Case looks great. Well, that's so, the whole episode. That is the whole episode. That's basically the, the really, show. No, um, actually, really, that's the whole series. It kind of is. It, it's it's funny at the end of the day. If um, that's why I wish she had she she could she couldn't have really gone, but I would have loved if she had been in those Batman episodes just briefly. Yeah. Um, and um, you know the. The thing about uh, th- there is one, um, you know, I, I I hate saying this, folks, because I do I do think this is a really good episode of the show. Um, but he punches out Scanlan, but then later on, there's no sort of is there a moment where Scanlan goes, "Hey, Brit, don't punch me like that again." <laughs> that no, that really not. hurt. And there isn't because you think there'd be a moment where it's like you 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 know that Scanlan understands why he did that, um, but but it's like you think there'd be a moment where it's like, hey man, you know, if if you gotta if 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 you want to go, just tell me, I'll lie down on the floor, I'll lay down on the floor, you know, I don't you you don't need to you don't need to punch me in the face, and uh, yeah. <laughs> That's we we never get that because at, at the end of the episode they're fine and dandy with each other again. So. Yeah. Well, and uh, the one thing I have a pro I I wish there was more of there was not really a whole lot of Mike in this. He was at the beginning and he was at the end. Like very little Mike. Yeah. How how much would he be tripping over himself because his boss you know apparently killed somebody? What you you would think? Yeah, I mean with just like protecting trying to protect Brit knowing his dad and everything. You yeah. Think, yeah. There, well, there is a nice moment in the end where they, they talk about it throughout how Hyde was going to write this article. His his brand, yeah, journalism is to indict the killer or, or the, 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 the accused, I'm sorry, indict the accused before there's been a trial. And then at the end of it, uh, it's like Scanlon says something like, "So, Britt, are you going to write this article about what happened here today?" And Britt says, "No, Mike, you are." 
and Mike says, like, uh, you know, more or less, like, I'll do my best. And he goes off to write the article, and which was actually the most low-key and quite quite a lovely Mike moment, I thought, where he was like, I, under, I understand what this is about, and I will... I will do my best, and I, I yeah. right there, Mike, who Mike who can get on my nerves was I thought was quite lovely there. Yes, yeah. yes, it was a very subdued Mike, and mm-hmm. I still would have liked to see a little something about him, you know, how he was coping with his beloved yeah. boss. But the the ending was nice. I did like the ending. Yeah, yeah. Except Casey deserved uh, the the vacation. Uh, the hour long lunch. Yeah. yeah. Oh, they're wacky. Oh yes. Uh, um. Uh, do, so, what, what, do you have anything else on this one? I think I, I'm all. I'm. I'm good. I just. I have just a little bit of, of trivia about our guest star please, here. Please, please. Um. So Dale Hyde was played by Michael Strong. He was in uh several Hawaii Five O episodes. Um. But one of them that he was in was called um. Uh, I think it's through the heavens or though the heavens fall. It's a take on the most deadly game, which uh, we've already seen in episode 11 of the hunters and the hunted. So apparently every TV series needed to do a version of that. Yes. Yes. He was also in an episode of man from Atlantis. Uh, Oh, I love man from Atlantis. I know. And he played a jerk (laughs) on, he played a jerk on big Valley. Um, then, (laughs) That's where I know him from. Wi-Fi Bo and him being a jerk on my Um The police lieutenant that was so keen on shooting Brit, which I was just like, oh, yeah. have you ever met anybody who enjoyed their work so much? Mm-hmm. Um, he's played by um, Frank Marth. We, he, he's been seen multiple times before this on this podcast. He was in an episode of Manimal, Manimal called Night of the Scorpion. Oh yes, with uh, uh, Doug McClure, I think. That's Doug yeah, McClure, he was so. the the ship's captain. He was um, uh-huh. MacArthur in an episode of Voyagers called a Sneak uh-huh. Attack. Oh yes, the uh, the Pearl Harbor one, isn't that the Pearl Harbor one where yeah. uh, they the Japanese attack Pearl Harbor? But it's okay. It was just like we just all fall. I remember when Amy and I talked about that. I said I thought Pearl Harbor would involve more chaos, but this basically involves like. Like like sprays of like um, uh, gunfire along the ground and people falling down and like two hours later it's okay you know if had had we known we needn't have gone to World War Two yeah know, we need have done that fight um, he was also he was also in an episode of Hawaii Five O called the Devil and Mr Frog so I got a couple of Hawaii Five O episode references after several episodes of not mentioning it. And um, he was also in Satan's School for Girls. Oh, yeah. yeah. He played a detective. And then our um, our writer, Don Tate, he did the screenplay for the Shaggy DA, App- the Apple Dumpling Gang, and he has the written by credit for Herbie Ghost Bananas. So <laughs> I just, I don't even know how you go from Hornet Save Thyself to Herbie Ghost Bananas. <laughs> to Apple Dumpling Gang. I don't know. You know, I will say this though: the night before, we, the the previous, uh, right, we're recording this in in early evening. Uh, the night before this, my wife and I watched, and for my first time in like ten years, The Private Eyes, which is a Tim Conway Don Knotts film, because Tim Tim Conway has been diagnosed, I believe, with dementia, if I read that correctly. 
Yes. And so I wanted to watch. Um, the The last film I watched with my dad before he died was The Private Eyes. And I bought it on Blu-ray. And we watched it the night before. So that ain't a Tate film, but it's it's Conway and, and Knott's. So I just thought I'd bring that up here, folks. I don't mean to bring everyone down, but... Oh, aren't things terrible? No, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Let's let's let's, let's have a good let's have a good time. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Please continue. That's all I have. We're gonna end on that downer note. <laughs> okay, so Chris, where can we find you online? You can find me on my blog, kikiwritesabout.com. Um, there's links to all my rerun junkie posts there. All my other posts, uh, links to my published work. Um, you can buy me a coffee. You can uh, sign up for my Patreon. Um, I've got something called Writing for Tips there. And if you need my thoughts coming at you in real time, full blast annoying, you can follow me on Twitter at Kiki Writes. Nice. All right. Thank you so much. I don't I don't really have anything to end this with apart from um, I'm, I'm going to reread a note. Miss Case looks great. Sweet ass theme song, and that was one by I believe J.J. Uh, Johnson did the music for this. Uh, he, yeah, I know him best. He did the the um, music for like Across 110th Street and uh, a bunch of other great uh, uh, kick ass uh, films and, and such. Uh, but but that's well, yeah, we could talk about uh, that more on, on another episode. Let's let's dive into what we're talking about here, which is Future Cop, Episode One. Fighting O'Haven, March 5th, 1977, written by Man Rubin, directed by Robert Douglas. Interesting thing I noticed is that the the show, the uh, Future Cop, was written by Anthony Wilson. But this says it's created by Anthony Wilson and Alan S. Epstein. And uh, A-N-D, Epstein. So I, I don't know. Anthony Wilson's name is still in the credits as an executive producer, but I'm wondering exactly what Alan brought to it, because there isn't too much difference between this there is there are some differences but there are not huge differences between this and the tv movie and i when i see something like that i think of um gemini man i'm always thinking of gemini man in one in one way or another i'm always thinking of, i'm always either thinking of gemini man or, or walking through a swamp gemini man written produced the gemini man tv movie written produced by leslie stevens but then when you get to the tv series it's like leslie stevens and a couple of other people but but it's it's interesting when you have a tv movie that seems to be sort of written by one person and then suddenly you hit the the tv series and there's someone added on or several people added on as if they tweaked and on gemini man you can see some of the tweaking that's done here we'll, we'll talk about that when we get to it but fighting O'Haven. So, 
This uh, obviously it's Ernest Borgnine as Cleaver, and I'm gonna get the names wrong. Ernest Borgnine is Cleaver, uh, John Amos is Bundy, and um, Michael Shannon as uh, Haven, uh, the future cop. So the episode begins with uh, um, uh, Cleaver going into Synthetronics and picking up Haven, who is relaxing, and we learn that Haven. Um, uh, he he has a 15-hour charge, but he should probably just stick to round 12. We also learn that he's not programmed for violence, which would seem to be tricky for a cop in Los Angeles. But uh, and not mean meaning to be snide, but you know, violent stuff happens here. So uh, the episode begins with the uh, yeah the the guys are all sitting in the diner and uh Brady and Cleaver are watching a um boxing match and Brady is excited because there's a uh a, a guy's boxing who he grew up a few uh doors away from and he's excited about it and and the 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 guy wins uh but we learn uh we we cut to the stadium and we see Charlie Willis uh, who um, I I know Charlie Willis. Uh, he was a character actor. I know him as like I think it was Barney Franks on the uh, episode with the uh, Wary Witness, uh, Ellery Queen episode. Wary Witness. He has a big mustache and it sounds like he's always going to swallow his words. Hey now, wait a minute. What are you doing? He not quite like that, but he always sounds like he's he's he is like his words are gonna go down his throat. And he's the manager of the this boxer. And he says you were supposed to throw the fight. I'm not going to throw the fight. But then the boxer goes out in the parking lot, gets hit by a car. Brady and Cleaver, I'm just going to call them the trio. Brady, Cleaver, and Haven, the trio, are all, uh, you know, like, we got to go to this uh, spot near the arena. And I'm going to give you a little sound bite here of uh, Cleaver and Brady talking about Haven. And um, Brady is, uh, Bundy, I'm sorry. Uh, see, I'm gonna get, I knew I was going to get that wrong. Bundy is not so sure. Hey, hey Joe. Huh? Let me ask you something. How much longer are we going to have that rookie on our backs? Ask the captain. Yeah, but Joe, he not only rides with us, he walks with us. He takes his days off with us. I'm telling you, that kid is like a shadow. Ah, he's not such a bad kid. After all, he didn't help us catch that penthouse burglar. Yeah, but you made the collar. Yeah, but he was the guy that chased that fella up and down 24 flights of stairs. He don't like sports. He don't like beer. He don't even dig chicks. I'm telling you, he just don't act like a regular red-blooded city cop. Well, I'll admit he's a little different, but remember, he's just a rookie. He's just a guy trying to find his place. Yeah, well, finding his place is one thing. Taking my place, that's another thing. Out! Is something wrong, sir? Yes, there's something wrong, kid. You're sitting in my seat. I'm sorry, sir, but that particular protocol has never been clarified. See, Joe? There he goes with them big words again. All right, don't get excited. Remember, you're just a rookie. Uh, fumble butt. Uh, get in the back seat. Now. Uh, yes, sir. While you guys were, uh, guys and gals were enjoying that clip, I wrote down Cleaver, Bundy, and Haven so I wouldn't sound like such a douche nozzle as we're going through this. So they, they go to the scene, and I, I believe the, 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 the boxer's name is Ollie Dawson, and Bundy is really sort of broken up by it since, since he knew uh, the boxer. And uh, it's somewhere around here. Well, the thing about it is that Cleaver is not allowed to tell Bundy what Haven is, even though Haven says lots of stuff like, my programming has said this, and Bunny's always like, huh, what are you talking about? And well, there's there's a moment where they discuss um, 
uh, they think it was a hit and run, and then they start to talk to Haven about it. This is the way it's gonna end? Some hit and run creep kills him and allows the accident? Excuse me, sir, it was neither a hit and run nor an accident. Huh? The victim was deliberately run down. What do you mean, deliberately? Identical tire tracks. Uh, HL78 wide treads, one with a diamond-shaped blemish on the inner tread, traversed the entire area, indicating the same vehicle pursued the victim across the parking lot before striking him. What tracks? I, I don't see no tire tracks. Uh, they're right here, sir. And uh, here and, and here. Listen, if the kid sees tire tracks, he sees them. Believe me, Ali Dawson was murdered. Uh, correct, sir. And a murder similar in fashion to those of Candy Boy Ramsey, Benny McDade, and Slugger Foster, all pugilists who recently died violent deaths. Joe, you know the kid may have some. Yeah, we should also include Tommy Miller, a referee who fell from a bridge two weeks ago. Well, kid, you got some memory. It's all part of my programming, sir. Huh? Uh, he means he reads sports magazines, you know. So they begin to uh, investigate. They go to they go to where Charlie uh, Charlie Willis there is uh, uh, um, uh, is is his his uh, gym. And uh, they they chat with Charlie about uh, the 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 boxer, and you've learned that a couple other boxers have been killed, and it may have something to do with some sort of mob family. And uh, Cleaver is thinking maybe we should put someone here undercover. Well, who are we going to put here? And then Haven using one of those you know those hit him with your fist there's a name for it you know and you know what i'm talking about he accidentally knocks it through a window and clear was like wait a minute uh it's uh oh haven the the latest new and exciting boxer on the scene oh and that's patty o'haven by the way uh with a map of ireland on the back of his you know robe when he goes into the um the the uh the ring and i believe it's green don't quote me on that i forgot to write that down but basically uh, well, more than basically, it what actually happens is yeah he he begins Charlie uh, begins to sort of train him, and Haven goes in there and he he wins some fights and everything's looking great. And then one day when he goes into the locker room where he needs to recharge a bit and he's supposed to be left alone, suddenly two goons show up. Hello, Jack Cassie. I don't believe you're permitted to be in here. Nor is the other person. Sure, we're permitted in here, kid. We know the right people. And you will, too. You know what I mean, kid? You're gonna meet them. I'd be delighted. Good. Good. Because these the right people. They decided to take over your contract. You understand, kid? Oh, of course. I've been expecting you. I like your style, O'Haven. You don't waste words. We'll get along fine. From now on, you just take your orders from me. Have you cleared this with Mr. Willis? I'll take care of the clearing. You just do what I say, okay? Oh, yes, sir. I'm programmed to obey instructions. <laughs> Excellent. Now, how do you feel about taking on Tiger Burns? A Tiger Jim Burns, the former champion? The same. I would enjoy the encounter, sir. You got it. Next week. Thank you, sir. Yeah, I think I'm gonna like doing business with you, kid. <laughs> Who's the boss? You are, sir. All right. 
I like that boy. They don't make goons like they used to. And where we uh, sort of, and I'll, I'll draw the, the curtain on this, but, but the two goons uh, basically, well, Charlie basically goes to Cleaver and says, the goons have said that in the next fight, the fight that, that, that the goon brings up there, they want uh, O'Haven to take a dive. And um, hmm, does he, does he not? Does everyone get killed? What's happened? What's going on? Are there twists? Are there turns? Is it exciting? Does, I don't know. All kinds of crazy stuff is going to happen in this episode. Isn't it's got Borgnine John Amos in it? Come on. So let's let's future cop, future cop. Now notice what I found interesting is that more so than a lot of shows, I think the the Immortal had a huge gap in it. But notice it's almost a year before the show uh, returns with Fighting O'Haven, and. Uh, to be honest, this is a good episode. I don't know that this is a great episode. It's it's weird because they they mm, they go out of their way to sort of not you know he when when he you know when when Haven punches people you know they fall down you know you hear at one point why don't you have the fight on when he goes into that restaurant when Cleaver goes into I think it's the Third Street restaurant when he goes in that restaurant that he likes why did you have the fight on it only lasted 18 seconds so Haven knocked him out and and O'Haven isn't into violence and uh, it's 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 kind of interesting the way they do it because they I mean the thing with data is that yeah data data was never really all that violent at least from what i've seen but he you know he could defend himself when he needed to but data had a certain charm to him but they they've they've done something weird i don't know if this is alan epstein all over it but the sort of not quite father son relationship between cleaver and haven which is is apparently according to the the dvd menu the pilot it may have been Future Cop, but apparently it was called Cleaver and Haven, which is an awful title for a pilot. So, or, oh, well, a TV movie. Um, but uh, Future Cop is much better. And can we just talk about the credits? I don't know if you've seen the credits for Future Cop, but whoever it was who chose, I don't know what the font or like the, when the title card comes up, Future Cop, it looks like like they're introducing like a Battle of the Networks, Battle of the Network Star seventy seven or something like that. It's wah, and it's it's sort of like this. Really, that that's what you chose for your Future Cop? Something that looks like not futuristic at all. I guess I, I, I yeah, I don't know. I mean, I guess at this point right, in pop culture. Uh, we are verging on um, Star Wars is, is coming out in a couple of months. So the sort of the face of science fiction-y stuff like this. I mean, Holmes and Yo-Yo came and went, folks. This ain't Holmes and Yo-Yo. Although we could talk about Holmes and Yo-Yo, certainly. Um, and and uh, John Shuck was on a Battle of the Network Stars um, f because of Holmes and Yo-Yo. But anyways, if you don't know what that is, look it up. Holmes and Yo-Yo. 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 It's like a mantra. I forgot my mantra. Holmes and Yo-Yo. Holmes and Yo-Yo. What was I saying? Yeah, Future Cop. Yeah, it's it's in a in a few months, sort of sci-fi and everything will sort of change. Uh, but right now, sci-fi looks like this. It looks like a regular cop show from the '70s with car chases and cops going undercover and thugs and and mob guys and and uh, all this all this stuff. It, it's funny the trope of the. Well, I don't know that it's that funny, you guys. Will you will you laugh if I tell you this just to humor me? But the trope of 
boxing, the boxing thing, the putting someone undercover in boxing, or the or the the going into the boxing stuff. I mean, it's it's uh, you know, Police Squad second episode was a boxing episode, but Police Squad was making fun of these tropes. This is the technically the first episode of Future Cop, and it's already doing a boxing trope. And it's it's you know as as uh, my thoughts on the episode is that it is just fine. It's a just fine episode. I it's it's um it sort of goes nowhere fast. So um it's 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 about fifty minutes long, a fifty five zero minutes long on my DVD, and it's it's a charmer. You know it 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 has a nice twist in it near the end oh, and the funny thing about the twist and i'm not going to spoil the ending but there there's a moment near the end after the take a dive fight where you, you something happens and you think huh how does that happen how did the, how did that happen and then there's one of two ways it could go from there and it actually went the way i didn't expect it to go although i'm sometimes a little slow on the dramatic uptake but there is a there is a lovely moment in the final chase, and I'm hopping all over the place here, folks. Um, I haven't done a, a full show like this by myself. I've done some episodes, as as you may have heard throughout the year, but I haven't done a full thing like this since The Immortal, and The Immortal was almost a different era. I mean, 1970 uh, is almost a different era of television. But there, there, there is a great moment where a chase in the end where um, the, the cleaver drives a car like uh, between ch- two um, big rigs and just goes through. And it's great because the bad guy's car gets stuck. And so you just get this great moment where the bad guy's car gets stuck and the bad guy get, gets knocked unconscious. And you just see the cop car comes up slowly behind it and is able to get the bad guy out. And I thought that's fun. Um, just because, yeah, I watched Diamonds Are Forever last night with a great scene where the car goes up on two wheels and goes through the alley, and then the other cars smash into, yeah, you know. So, uh, what else about Future Cop? I, 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 I like that they brought Bundy, who is is quite wonderful. That's the fastest white boy I've ever seen. Is a great line when he when Bundy's watching uh, Haven run and run and run. I love I love that they brought Bundy on in the car with them. It's it's not like in the TV movie it was very specifically Cleaver and Haven are going out and Bundy is sort of like off to the side doing something else like uh like what are you guys doing kind of thing. And even in the end uh Bundy gets his own um rookie to travel with. But I like the fact that they're putting Haven in the car with them and the two of them are there. The the tricky thing about it is that yeah, the the sort of father son thing between Cleaver and Haven, which became quite lovely at the end of the TV movie, is completely gone here. Apart from moments of sort of uh, Haven misunderstanding what people are telling him, and uh, you know trying to stop two members of a gang from fighting, and then not realizing they're kind of picking on him, and that's actually the scene that that convinces um, the 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 thing through the window kind of makes Cleaver and Bunny go, hmm. But then it's the moment where these gang guys trying to beat up Haven and Haven just keeps bobbing and weaving out of the way and they're like, oh, he can be our boxer. But yeah, the it, it seems like that opening scene and there's a new um, female scientist and the, uh, the guy scientist, he's my creation or whatever he was doing, he seems to be gone. Although the, the chief, at one point Cleaver meets up with the chief 
of police or, or his boss and he looks a lot like that scientist and he could be that scientist i'll check in on that i just i just realized that right now as i'm saying this so i i will get back to you on that but yeah the, this sort of cleaver and haven kind of father and son kind of budding relationship is gone and haven is more or less it's it's more or less between cleaver and bunny like the episode is stuff like um i don't hear anyone within 50 uh, feet of this or 50 meters or 50 feet of this how does he know that because he's got good ears i think uh that um the place where this airplane was was uh, not at van nuys airport or uh lax or da 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 i think it was at the santa monica municipal municipal airport how does he know that because he's smart you know and it's it's um it's more of a cleaver and bundy going back and forth with one another while haven sort of stands in the background not doing as much as you'd imagine now i say that sort of alongside um, I, 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 I say it like that because the what is it the first ep, the first regular episode of Gemini Man there I go again smithereens with uh, Buffalo Bill I'm on here I'm on here is Sam uh, barely uses his invisibility in that and in this I mean he does a lot of bobbing Haven does a lot of bobbing and weaving but um, I'll be honest watching just like a guy who's supposed to be an android cop bobbing and weaving um is not the most enticingly exciting thing you could watch but that does happen here and although although during that scene where he he the two goons are talking to him he has a look on his face it's a little tough to read but it's sort of like he's just he seems to be very excited that the bad guys have come to him you know and talking to him you know and he's just it, which i like um what else what else i'm gonna just grab my notes here I mean, I think it's a it's a it's a decent opening episode. I mean, it's entertaining enough. Uh, you know, there there isn't as much boxing as you'd imagine, uh, and there's a lot of fun stuff between Borgnine and Amos, which I really like. Not like I said, not much as much with Haven. But I'm just I'm just looking at my notes here. Oh, Patio Haven. Yeah, San Marino. We had to go down to San Marino, map of Ireland. Da, 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 da. Was it the case? Some great some great faces. Yeah, that's right. Some of the the goons have a lot of great faces in this episode. Uh, what else? Well, let me uh, let me say this. I enjoy the episode. But I think it's underselling its concept, much like the Smithereens episode of Gemini Man. But Gemini Man was actually far more exciting. I think I think Crazy Trucking is more exciting than another boxing episode, unless it's hilarious. So I we here's what we got. Uh, you so we got the TV movie in '76, and then we have five episodes that aired in march and april of 77 five five count them five we haven't had five since beyond westworld but this is technically it's more than five if you count the tv movies and i did say tv movies so it's interesting there are five episodes which seems i guess like beyond westworld it seemed weird to me too i mean because that we watched that on warner archive instant and that was the complete series so they just did like a pilot and then they well, no, I was going to say Joni Loves Chachi only had four episodes for its initial thing. And I don't know that the first episode of Joni Loves Chachi was a pilot so much as they gave him four episodes. So Beyond Westworld, I can justify as a pilot, and then we'll give you four, see how it goes, boom, you canceled. Future Cop, to me, looks like there, because there are four hours 
and one two-hour-long episode. So my guess would be that they gave them six episodes, and for some reason they decided to combine uh, two of the episodes into one. And that'll, and that'll actually be the next episode, which has a very fun director on it. But, yeah, so we got five episodes. So we had the TV movie on the... And I hope you guys listened. That was on the mini It was the TV movie. And then we'll have five episodes to discuss, one of them being two hours. And then we're going to have another mini which covers a TV movie that aired a year after this, and it's called Cops and Robin. I have not actually seen that. I don't know how much it relates to Future Cop, but it's on the two-disc set that Mill Creek put out, so we're going to talk about it. But, yeah, this is the first episode of Future Cop, Fighting O'Haven. Um, I I prefer the TV movie. Uh, I, I think this is fun, though, mainly because of the John Amos-Ernest uh, Borgnine interaction. The, the, the Haven stuff isn't as, as great as it could be, and the, the boxing stuff is, is all right. Um, it's... it's um, it's worth a viewing, and I think it's worth sticking around to find out where the show is going to go from here. Now, the fact that we only have four episodes left, one of them being a two-hour episode, means that the show isn't, go- isn't going to very many places. But because we had that TV movie, it's certainly going to more places than Beyond Westworld did, which didn't really ever seem to go anywhere. And now I want to watch Beyond Westworld again, but Warner Archive Instant is no more... Do you hear Filmstruck is going away? Warner Archive Instant, that might date us here. Uh, Warner Archive Instant is no more. And I'm not really interested in spending like 25 bucks on a couple of DVDs for the show. But Future Cop, Borgnine, Amos, Shannon. Next time, The Mad Mad Bomber. That's the two-hour episodes. Let's see where that goes. All right, folks. I'm all I'm all over the place with this because there's a there's a lot. I'm I have I've had a busy day, and and it's it's fun starting a new show uh, like this. So, Future Cop. Let's go. Where are we going? Oh, we're going to Bourbon Street. Bourbon Street beat. Bourbon Street beat. Bourbon Street. Starring Richard Long. In New Orleans. Andrew Duggan. This is the blues. With Arlene Howell and Van Williams. Produced by Warner Brothers. Episode 13 of Bourbon Street Beat, Portrait of Lenore, aired December 28, 1959. Our last episode in 59. Directed by Robert Gordon. Written by a uh, screen teleplay by uh, uh, Milton Geiger and Charles Hoffman with a story by uh, uh, Mr. Geiger. This one is about a painting of a woman named Lenore, painted by her husband, well, not by her husband, for her husband, Andre Lamartine. Her name was Lenore Lamartine. She died in a boating accident. And Andre has this portrait to remember her, which is hanging in a local museum in New Orleans. It's Mardi Gras, everybody. It's a big, loud, raucous episode. And one night the portrait is stolen. The woman who runs the museum, Sybil, is good friends with Rex and gets him to help out, find find out what's going on. Meanwhile, though, our foursome is, is in costume. They're living it up and loving it up and having a great time. They're at a party where they meet this mysterious veiled woman who Rex kind of is interested in because she's so mysterious. And they meet a person. Well, they don't meet them. They kind of bump into a person with a strange kind of creepy pig's head mask on. And Sybil with Rex there gets a call. Uh, $10,000 um, for the painting. And it's that veiled woman. And Rex and her have several meetings throughout the episode as they're trying to, you know, get the 
exchange the painting and and the, and the, and the money and Rex is very intrigued by her wants her to lift up the veil wants to see her face and and she's she's very uh closed off but very mysterious and as their relationship is sort of developing we also have this pighead mass person kind of lurking in the background we have the Mardi Gras going on loud and proud and then Andre Lamartine reappears and he wants his painting back so it becomes even more impertinent no not impertinent it's it becomes even more imperative sorry don't be impertinent it becomes even more imperative that they get the painting back but as always some things go wrong so let me give you a little blast and we'll dive right in bourbon street drinks All right, here we go, everyone. Portrait of Lenore. And I have with me, you know him, I know him, he knows him, presumably his wife knows him, um, my dogs don't know him, one day they'll meet in person. I have here with me the great, the wonderful <laughs> Mitchell Hadley. <clears throat> Mitchell, how are you? I I don't know how I can live up to that introduction, <laughs> but I'll do my best here. Yay! <laughs> hey, that's all we can do. That's all we can do. So um, let me, we'll, we're just going to dive right in. Sure. Uh, so, uh, and we'll do as we always do. We'll a uh, uh, broad overview from you, then from me, and then we'll just um, kind of nitpick it little bits here and there. So uh, what are your overall thoughts on Portrait of Lenore? Well, I think this is an episode that has a little bit of everything. It's got um, a locked room mystery. It has perhaps the uh, one of the most incompetent guards that you'll ever see in a museum. Um, yes. It has it has Mardi Gras, which and and really you could have just stopped with Mardi Gras mm-hmm. and that would say it all there. Um, you get this, an idea of what uh, Kenny would look like if he were a Martian. It. Uh, <laughs> And and you have a mystery at the heart of it. So I, I think that this is lacking for nothing. Oh, lovely. Lovely. Yeah, I, I, I'm actually I'm I'm pretty much with you there. The the when it when it starts off yeah, with the Mardi Gras sort of loud and large, it's uh it's it's like of course there'd be an episode in the Mardi Gras. I, I'm surprised there hasn't been one yet. I mean yeah. we're we're at Lucky Thirteen, I guess, and it's it's time to um uh, and, and wait a minute, 13, so we're, we're one-third of the way through the episodes. Oh, wow. Um, and so fi- finally, Mardi Gras. But yeah, it has this great, it, oh my gosh, I love that guard so much. Because I, uh, <laughs> I, I don't think, I, unless you see the scene, you can't fully understand what Mitchell said. <laughs> because it literally is, it doesn't, it doesn't look like a museum. It looks like a hallway. And there's this yeah. painting of Lenore. And there's a, there's a... a you know, it's not like the Mona Lisa where you have to stand a bit of a distance away. There's like one of those roped off off things. You know those. You know those things I'm talking about. You know, um, uh, velvet in, rope. Velvet rope. Of, yeah, velvet rope yeah. type of thing. But it's like two or three feet in front of the the painting, and there's a big, you know, um, forbidden to. I, I was actually just going to say I. I I just uh, watched the other day the uh, first episode of the Doctor Who story, The Dalek Invasion of Earth, and all I can ah. think of is it is forbidden to dump bodies in the river, which would be a you know a sign that if if you saw that it's like I think we're in 20th century Earth. What about this sign, Doctor? Huh. <laughs> <laughs> Obviously something has changed. <laughs> something is going on. Just, just the way like you see that sign right off the bat when a guy goes the Robo Man goes in the water and kills himself, but then Ian kind of walks by and gives it a look like the hell but that's a that's a bit of a tangent folks because this is this sign just says it is forbidden to eat fruit no it's forbidden to dump forbidden to take pictures 
don't take pictures of Lenore. I should have just had it up on the screen. And what happens is, yeah, you see this great uh, guard walk by, like, you know, yeah, there it is, still there. No one's taking photos. And he looks out a window, and he sees the Mardi Gras. And he watches it for must be one must be thirty seconds. Uh, at, yeah, at most. At well, yeah, I, I could be overdoing it there. He turns, the painting's gone, in like a completely empty room with no one. It's it's like what? How'd that happen? And you know, I guess, I guess we don't question that too much because that's no, how it gets obviously going. they needed a sign up there that said, "Please do not steal the painting." Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's like, and I'm I'm wondering if it was like um. You know, uh, whenever they do those, uh, like, uh, people are breaking in kind of things, it's like, okay, so the guard passes by, does his rounds, he goes around the museum every seven point, uh, seven minutes and 30 seconds. So he's passing by here at five minutes to five minutes and 20 seconds. So we have the space in between there, and, you know, that kind of thing where it's like, <laughs> well, the guard wanders up and down this hall, and he'll be looking out the Mardi Gras every five minutes. And he has, we have 30 seconds when he looks out at the Mardi Gras every five minutes. <laughs> And it's like someone stabbed once. I go, he's there. Do it. Da, 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 it's, da, almost, it's almost as if that is his only job is to look at this painting yeah, that, or that, look after this painting and, and occasionally look outside where he's clearly thinking to himself, boy, I wish I was out there instead of here guarding this painting. <laughs> yes. yes, well, that's, you, you know, some, maybe this, this is probably not his ideal job. He wants to wear one of those giant Mardi Gras heads, you know, they're kind of creepy, <laughs> you know, and, and but yeah, he's, he's just kind of stuck here doing that. In I mean, other I, words, we want the backstory of this man. We want, yeah, we want to know what's <laughs> up with this guy because we, we do learn, obviously, it is a museum because when we meet is it Sybil um yeah, yeah she she's in charge of the museum and, and you know she knows she knows Rex and um and knows but, Rex well I yeah. think judging from the familiarity between the two yes. there um there there certainly is something there uh, I mean a past relationship yeah she because she calls him I don't know actually when she calls him but Rex is asleep and she, and she has no worry about calling him you know, right. he's he's snoozing away, and um, uh, along with all of that, we get a lot of great Mardi Gras stuff. Everybody dresses up in costume. Uh, Rex and Cal are like skeletons, you know, in that sort of classic, um, uh, you know, like they used to like the way skeletons used to look when they would dance in like 1930s cartoons. Yes, you know, yes, kind with of the, the, uh, basically a black suit or a, a black tight suit with the white uh, bones on it. Yes, and mm-hmm. and and um, and and. Um, uh, Mr. Van Williams, who's uh, Kenny, uh, his is dressed as a spaceman, which is great. And uh, I, th- I believe, um, uh, gosh, why am I blanking on her name? She's a belly dancer. Why, um, why, uh, wasn't she? Uh, um, we're, we're Melody, yes. Sorry, everyone. Sorry, everyone. <laughs> um, yeah, Melody was a belly, belly dancer, I believe. And there's some there's some great moments where they go to a costume party and you see this person with a veil who turns out to be very important. And then you see someone in a rather creepy pig mask who turns out to be rather important. So, yeah, I, I think this has got a lot of great stuff in it. And the, the character of the, with the woman behind the veil who, mm-hmm. who, Rex, who, who, who has stolen the painting and Rex kind of gets in a sort of uh, a relationship of sorts with her. Yeah, some, actually kind of poignant. Yes. Yeah, and, and you have uh, the as, – as that is kind of developing and we'll bring you the money, give us the painting, this, that, and the other. You get the um, the uh, the guy, the rich guy returning who Lenore was his um, his wife. And I explained all that in the, in the recap. But yeah, he returns and he wants his painting back. And um, 
I, I don't I don't want to give away what the ending is, but the ending is really I think I think was really quite lovely. Yes. Uh, it it gets to kind of a big dramatic point where Rex has kind of figured out what's going on, and then there's not a I don't know if it, there's a twist per se, but sort of it it kind of goes the way you're hoping it will go. Mm, yeah, and, and I would agree with that. And you're you're worried that it might not. But it does, and it's really kind of a lovely, poignant ending. And it's actually one of those endings where um, when Rex kind of gets everyone together who's supposed to be together, he kind of sneaks out in the background as, as, it's, as, it, as the drama is sort of ending in front of him, which I Rex really like. Rex has taken care of it all. Yes, yeah. Yes. Mm-hmm. Uh, a good job done. Yeah, yeah. So I think overall this is a pretty pretty fine episode. With Everyone gets a bit to do, Rex obviously more so, but it's always nice when they're there together, when they're celebrating. It's great. So and, uh, and and Cal has another great line in there where they're talking about uh, about something and he makes a reference to a Freudian slipcover. Oh yes, yeah. <laughs> yeah, he's he's I got. I count on him for the, that kind of thing. The, the Calisms or what? Do we have a name for those? I don't know. But he, oh, he's, I think uh, we do now. Okay, there Cal- we go. Calism, yes. There you go. Um, oh, it's Andre Lamonte La or something like that. Montaigne or something. I forget. Andre is the name of yes. the guy. Yes. Um, let's see. What what else do you have for this? I'm going to look at my notes here because there's well, there's a I lot think- going on. There, there, there is an interesting, mysterious character that you never see and doesn't play a big role in it, but does play a, a, an unseen role, and that's this mysterious Greek shipbuilder who's mm-hmm. also an art collector. And, um, that, you know, whenever you have a Greek shipbuilder, of yeah. course, I'm always assuming that they're talking about Aristotle Onassis. Oh, sure, yeah. Mm-hmm. And and that has to be the reference here. And, and this is, you know, this is... Uh, of course, well before uh, Onassis marries uh, Jacqueline Kennedy. So uh, he doesn't have that particular spot in American pop culture yet, but he's still known, and mm-hmm. he's known for being a very wealthy man and going out with uh, beautiful women, and he's got Maria Callas as his love interest. And mm-hmm. so I always assume that uh, that, that these, these uh, Greek shipbuilders are are supposed to be onassis i would that would be my guess yeah that that's kind of what i thought and you, yeah uh and what do the, are the greeks the best shipbuilders or is that uh, i don't know you know i know that you'd beware of uh, greeks bearing gifts but oh, uh, maybe yeah. it's, it's maybe it's bearing them on a ship yeah maybe i guess if a ship with a giant wooden horse shows up on you at your dock you run, you know Run yeah, exactly. <laughs> Time to run. <laughs> yeah. um, I, I, there, there. Um, uh, uh, as I said, the atmosphere is one of the things I love about this episode, mixed with this really, I think, kind of interesting story. And and there is a, there is a moment in here where Cal and Rex are are eating, and I forget if they're discussing anything, but all of a sudden, like the band that's playing, uh, oh, little, yeah. you know, little 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 ragtime, little Dixieland jazz, um, they just suddenly they all get up. And they start moving around, dancing around the uh, the the club that they're in, and it's just it's it's raucous and it's fun and it's it it's one of those things where it 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 isn't quite a um, uh, we need to pad it out so we're gonna do this long musical thing. It's mo- it's more of a just adding atmosphere. Which and, I, and, but which I like. that part of the scene is just totally given over to it. Mm-hmm. it it's it's not a clue. It isn't significant. You're right. It's not a filler. It is. Uh, it, it reminds me a little bit of what they would do in uh, 
the uh, Ellery Queen mysteries, the the A and E version, where occasionally they'd have this video montage with the music of the period playing in the background, mm-hmm. uh, and um, it, this is a little different, obviously, because you've got the the band playing right there in mm-hmm. in the club. But uh, it, it it is a very nice atmosphere, you know, the swing in Dixieland uh, uh, combined with the uh, with the Mardi Gras. And I know we've talked about this before, the architecture, the, the houses that appear in the uh, series, even though they're using the same sets over and over, just changing them a little bit. But mm-hmm. they really do a great job in letting you know that this is not uh, 77 Sunset Strip. This isn't Surfside 6 or Hawaiian Eye. This is New Orleans. And it is a unique city in this country. Yeah, exa- exactly. And I think... I think the um, the the yeah, the thing with that moment when the band plays is there's just this great feel of um, yeah you know what this painting has been stolen and that's important and there's a this veiled woman who may or may not have something to do with it and this pig-headed person but you know what it's still Mardi Gras yeah and we're still uh, uh, you know New Orleans citizens and we are going to have a nice dinner and listen to some Dixieland jazz. That's not gonna. That's not gonna slow us down, nope. uh, the, because will the uh, uh, the crime will will be got to gotten to got to when it it needs to. And mm-hmm. and right now we just wanna, and not rock out, but jazz out. I don't know what you do when you swing. Yeah, swing. So, you want to swing. Yeah. We want to swing. Yeah. So uh, yeah. So that's that's a scene I really liked. Yeah. Um, it's a, it's it, it um the overall episode has that uh that tenor of uh happening at night there's a mm-hmm. darkness to it it's yes. not the, not the darkness of a heavy evil type thing but just uh, the, the whole atmosphere yeah and this i is... think they really do that well in this series and this is a mm-hmm. good example of it yeah this is this sort of uh at uh the this is mardi gras and and stuff happens all day but sort of at night is where it really becomes fun and mix that in with the veiled woman and everything and yeah there's i and yeah. the pig head and a pale, yeah, that was a good yeah. one. When the 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 look Melody gives the pig-headed person it was like, <laughs> oh crap. And it it reminded the pig-headed person reminds me of um uh the 1980 film Motel Hell. I don't know if you've seen that one. It's a fun I, one. I have not. But... It's 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 fun. It's basically oh my gosh, who's in it? It's 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 basically like two an old sort of redneck couple who um Farmer Vincent. Uh, farmers Vincent's uh, fritters or something like that. It takes all kind of critters to make Farmer Vincent's fritters, and you might get <laughs> you you might guess what the main critters are uh, in the um, in the fritters. Uh, they they uh, I, I I don't want to ruin it, but you might be able to guess. But the but the final the final sequence in that is um, takes place in kind of the slaughterhouse area for the fritters, and uh, basically like the hero and the Farmer Vincent get a chainsaw duel, and Farmer Vincent is wearing a pig head, and and although that's kind of gorier and more intense than the pig head here, it reminded me of that, and I just thought, <laughs> and, and and but even like Melody gives it a look like, holy crap, really that a pig head? Huh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Damn, hmm. I don't know about that. Pork pork head? I don't know. I don't know what you would call. So that sounds a little little rough, actually. Having said that, it does. but I was it just does. I was, bacon bacon head. How about that? There, that there, there. That's good. Um, so let's see. What else do I have here? Let's see. We got that photographer guy. We got. Um, I do. I do like the way the 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 sort of bits and and bobs that we get that fill in um, clues and things here are really um, uh, like. Uh, 
you know, the reason why the the, the woman stole the painting mm-hmm. is is not what you think it is. It's it's actually a really cool. So, well, it's not really cool. It's it's tragic. But but it's actually like her her thought process behind why she takes the painting is she was always going to give it back. But if she can make a little cash off of it, why not? It's it's yeah. it's America. Why not? But but there is sort of a yeah yeah, and so there there is a feeling of like when you realize why she took the painting, it's sort of like oh yeah, that's that's actually a cool little little thing right there. Well, it, it works as a mystery. I think that's mm-hmm. uh, that's part of it too. Is that um, you have the twists and the turns, but um, it it doesn't feel contrived. It all makes sense. And uh, it may not be a perfect mystery, but it isn't one that requires any dramatic suspension of disbelief in order yeah. to get from the beginning to the end. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because once you once you hit the end and all is revealed, uh, I, when I went back and watched the second time, not now not that it was like um, major revelations were exploding all around me, but but when you when you know what the veiled person is up to at the end, and you watch them in a different light the second time through it's it's a very satisfying um, mm-hmm. sec- second journey through and and there is this thing too with um rex really is intrigued by this woman and and it, it, uh, the first time i watched it i remember thinking i don't know what she looks like under that veil and um whether she's beautiful whether she's I, I don't want to say average, uh, you know, just just uh, I don't want to say regular either. You know, I, I who, how about someone who's not uh, Rex's type? Yes. Or, or whether whether there's something else going on, because my thought was, what if she just took off the veil and she just wasn't Rex's type? And you just you wouldn't see her face, but you just see his face. Go, his come face, on. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Come on. Take off that. Oh, <laughs> yeah. You I mean, you can call me. Here's here's I'll write down my number. Yeah, that's yeah, that's my number. That's uh, all the numbers begin with five 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 here. So just yeah, you can go, you you give me a call. I just I'm usually in unless I'm out. Okay, but I just forgot I have an appointment. I I do, I, I'm already late. I do have to go to my doctor's real quick. So if you'll forgive me. Um, should, and uh, should we say who the actress is who's playing Lenore? Sure, sure. Yeah, I've forgotten who. Madeline Rue. Oh, and wow. and. And um, Madeline Rue is a strikingly attractive woman. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, you probably remember her in any number of shows from the classic TV era. And this is a very interesting casting choice because you've cast a beauty who's never seen. Yes. <laughs> yes, exactly. Yeah, it's – and um, uh, there, there – there, uh, See, here's a moment I want to talk about, but I feel like this is spoiling it. Okay, I'll be vague. There is a reveal. I mean, obviously, you've got a veiled woman. Eventually, the veil's going to come up. Right. Um, there is a reveal that is done where you think to yourself, oh, you know what? Um, I'm. You know what movie I'm going to use? And this might not spoil it for too many people. Uh, She-Demons from the late 50s. There's a... Is it She-Demons? Is that what I'm thinking of? Wait a minute. I think it's I think it's she demons. If I'm getting it wrong, it's the one where they're on an island and there's like a Nazi experimenting on women. And at the at the end of it, there's a scene. Well, oh, no, I'm going to give it away. I'm just going to leave it at that. There's a reveal in she demons where you think, how are they going to do this? This movie is so cheap. This is going to look rotten. And they do it in such a way that it's like they they leave it to your imagination and and just give you a glimpse. 
and it works. It's probably the only thing that works in Shoe Demons. Um, apart from the Nazi, I think, <laughs> calls someone a Schweinhund, which is oh, like... That, yeah, well, that, which, that's classic. Which is, that's classic Nazi talk. Mm, yes. um, but but that's sort of what they do here. There has There's a moment where there's going to be a reveal, and you think, ooh, this, this could go... This could be really great, or this could kind of bomb the whole episode. And they do it in a discreet way that leaves it to your imagination. And, and I, I, I appreciated that. I was like, yeah, well, well done. Well done. I mean, it's kind of, it's, I, I guess, like the show, it's classy. It's, pre, it's mm-hmm. a pretty classy way to do it. Um, so let's see. What, what else do you have? I think I'm kind of near the end of my notes here. Um, I, that, that pretty much covers it. We've got the Baron back. He has yes, been yes. in for a while, and it's mm-hmm. kind of nice to see him back giving them uh, information again. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and oh, you know, I I got the um the scene where the where the band comes off the stage mm-hmm. uh, here, and they they've got it situated so that Rex and Cal are facing away from the band, and the band kind of surprises them when they're suddenly all in a circle around them. Beautiful. I love it. I love. I don't know if they're so. It, it, it's like I know Rex gets into his food, but I think I think Cal has been getting into it more and more, hanging out with Rex. So mm-hmm. I like I like the fact that um, they're so into that that they can't hear a trombone, like a clarinet, a trumpet, <laughs> you know, all come up directly in a saxophone. You're like, come, is there a saxophone? I miss it. Um, that, like, literally surround them. And they're like, oh, hey, guys, what are you yeah, doing? You somebody know? turn up the, the audio <laughs> yeah, here? Whoa, <laughs> hey. <laughs> well, speaking of Cal, there was one other thing in this episode, too, because Cal shows some nice menace near the end of the episode. Mm-hmm. And he makes a comment, and I'm not sure whether he is – telling the truth or not but he mentions that he could arrest somebody because he's just on leave from yes, the police now i didn't moment, know yeah. that yeah, you know having no having worked through it to where we've seen him become part of the firm they've never suggested that his departure from the police department was anything but permanent yeah Huh, I wonder if he's if he took maybe he had a lot of vacation time stored up and he says, you know, like I'll be away for 39 weeks or something like that. Or or but yeah, I didn't the moment he said that I was like, "Oh wow." Yeah. That's, yeah, we that's... noticed that too and I I mean it could be that he's just bluffing. But Yeah. Mm-hmm. Because they haven't set up for that, but it could be uh could be true. Just kind of an interesting thing to throw in there. Yeah. Yeah, that yeah, they, thanks for bringing that up. Yeah, I I forgotten about that. Yeah, that is um uh, the hell is this note? I got some weird notes here, but yeah, that is a great. Uh, <laughs> that is a that is a great. Thank you, thank you for that. I have, I, I don't know what this means. I guess I'd have to look at the ending to see what this means. But it's um, it's just it's the note is just grab his ass. I don't know what that note means. Ooh. Did that? Do, did that? I don't know. It's it's near the end, so it's something that happens near the end. How, how about this, um, Mitchell? Uh, tell us where we can. Um, where where are you? Are you all right? Are you all right? Do you need the police? Uh, no. Tell us. Um, tell us where you are online. Tell you. Tell us what's going on. Tell us about your book, which I finally finished and I loved. Please, while I just f- fast forward ahead and try to figure out what this note means. <laughs> well, while uh, while Dan is trying to find out what uh, grab his ass means, I can tell you <laughs> that uh, uh, you can uh, find my book, The Electronic Mirror: What Classic TV Tells Us About who we were and who we are and everything in between. It is available at uh, uh, Amazon.com, BarnesandNoble.com, pretty much any place online where you can uh, buy fine books. Uh, You can also find me online at 
itsabouttv.com. That is my website, updated uh, four times a week with uh, all sorts of insight into classic television and how it relates to American culture. Thank you. And I can't figure out what I meant by grab his ass. Uh, mm. Pardon me, everyone. You know, we try to keep it clean on here. Well, ass isn't that bad. No, uh, you know. no it isn't. Um, uh, I'm, trying to, I'm trying to figure out, because it, it would be near the end, and it's it's and I can't I can't say what one of the scenes is because it's the ending. But I'm thinking, I don't know. It's one of the scenes. There there's there's like a scene with the final scene between the veiled lady and someone. Mm-hmm. And maybe I'm thinking she should grab his ass. And um, there's there's a scene where uh, Sybil is going on board a ship, and Kel comes down the walkway. And I'm thinking maybe she should grab it. Hmm. But uh, but then then Kenny and Melody are talking. I really can't. I'm, I'm sorry, everyone. I you know what I'll do. I can't. I can't promise it'll be in the next couple recaps. <laughs> but but maybe somewhere down the line, I will tell you exactly what that note means. Well, and I would say too that if uh, there are any viewers out here who have an idea of what it is, you are welcome to write into either one of us, address yes. the subject line grab his ass and explain <laughs> to us what you think yes. this is referring to yes and there'll be some sort of prize and no you're not getting free copies of our books we put a lot of work into those <laughs> maybe maybe mitchell will give you an eight by ten glossy signed yeah how about yes. how about how about we'll do this mitchell will give me an eight by ten glossy himself for me to sign and give to you so you get well, everything yeah you get everything okay so i i think we covered portrait of lenore um pretty darn well a, and, a good episode very yes good. i a very good episode um and so let's um you know what i was going to try to instigate a new catchphrase you might be able to figure out what that is but i'm going to pass on that one well i'll talk to you next time folks <laughs> All right, everybody, episode 57 of Eventually Super Train is over. I hope you like the future cop stuff. Yes, I am going to call it Time Cop on more than one occasion, and who knows, maybe I called it Time Cop several times during that segment. You just It's something to look out for. You know, if you... Here, how about this? If you count up all the times I say Time Cop during the future cop segment, add them up, and you get the number right... Uh, you win a prize. I don't know what sort of prize. Maybe uh, Mitch will give you a free copy of his book. Thank you, Mitchell. Uh, but anyways, uh, that was uh, episode 57 of Eventually Super Train. Uh, what's going on? Eventuallysupertrain.blogspot.com is our website. Esupertrain at yahoo.com is our email address. At Esupertrain1 is Twitter. Eventually Super Train over at Facebook. I can find my writing, uh, some of my writing on Bleeding Skull, uh, Polish American Guy, reviews.blogspot.com. Uh, I've got a couple books, 80s action movies on the cheat, Bleeding Skull, 1980s trash horror Odyssey. I'm on the Made for TV Mayhem show with the great Amanda Reyes and the great Nate Johnson. I'm on Podcast Mania with a bunch of goofballs, including Amanda. I'm everywhere. Actually, I'm not everywhere. I'm just, I'm here, there. I'm having a good time. And I'm back in hell. Enjoy, my friends, everybody, and we'll be back with episode 58, wrapping up Green Hornet. Only got two more episodes of Green Hornet. Uh, we got a lot of Burbis Beat and Time Cop. Ha <laughs> One. I counted that one. I don't know uh, if that works, but Future Cop. We still got some left, as you, as you hear. So, uh, yeah, thanks for listening, everybody, and um, welcome to hell. Good luck.